0: Hey you guys. So I am in my off week, but I have a couple bonus episodes for you. One of which is this episode. It is a conversation I recorded with Lara Marie Shane Halls, whom I know a lot of you know from Sex Unique podcast. We sat down a couple months ago and watched um, Randall Emmett's debut film, Midnight in the Switchgrass, and we just broke it all down. And um, I just actually, I never got around to editing it just because of time, energy, uh, bandwidth sort of stuff. But I finally completed it and thought I would leave it here for you guys this week. Okay, guys, I hope you enjoy. Hi, and welcome to Deep Dive with Jamie Stein, where we take a deep dive look at all things reality TV, pop culture, and the world at large. I'm an intuitive and an empath which means I pick up on the thoughts, feelings, and energy percolating in other people in the world around me. I believe there is meaning waiting to be found at every turn, if you're willing to see it. So join me as we dismantle everything from trash TV to high spiritual concepts and learn more about ourselves, each other, and how we're all connected. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to a special episode of Deep Dive with Jamie Stein. Um, I am here with very good friend of the podcast, Laura Marie Shane Halls, uh, who most of you, I'm sure, know as the host of the iconic Sexy Unique podcast, as well as Beverly Hills Angels, Sex Saving Sex in the City, and all sorts of different podcast iterations. Hello, Lara. Hi,
1: thank you for having me.
0: Oh, I'm glad you're here. How are you today?
1: I'm good. I was saying I just watched the movie we're about to talk about, and it was a harrowing Friday <laughs> afternoon watch that left me feeling stressed and depressed. So I'm ready to offload that onto just your listeners and then leave it in the past where it belongs.
0: Well, we all need to carry the burden together. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, as indicated... Some of you may or may not know, but July saw what I would call a very important cinematic event in terms of reality TV landscape. And that was the official release of the directorial debut of one Randall Emmett. Uh, He released a movie called, I always get this wrong, it's called Midnight in the Switchgrass. Yes. Yeah. I always want to call it like murder in the switchgrass or midnight in the switchblade. It's midnight in the switchgrass. Uh, TBD, what the actual significance of the switchgrass is is in the movie but it is called midnight in the switchgrass and um i just thought we needed to kind of do our due diligence as bravo devotees and and fans and analysis of the vanderpump rules universe to like stop in and and check out this movie and and what it wants to reveal to us about Randall, about the cinematic universe of Vanderpump rules and anything else it just wants to reveal to us about ourselves as a collective. So I asked Lara if she'd be willing to watch the movie and she was. And we both just finished it today and we thought we'd kind of drop in and see what wants to be revealed. Yeah, a debriefing, if you will. Exactly. We're doing it so you don't have to, although Mm -hmm. you're welcome to go. Watch.
1: Although you probably did. If you're listening to this podcast, (laughs) chances are you're very familiar with Midnight in the Switchgrass or at least the Vanderpump Rules universe to some extent.
0: Oh, yeah. I I actually don't know that many people, I think even people who are in the Vanderpump Rules universe, I don't know that many people actually took the initiative to go seek out Midnight in the Switchgrass.
1: What really shocked me was that it has a 9% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which I think is mostly due to people troll rating it low because it was not a 9% for me. And I went in with the true lowest of the low expectations and was kind of presently pleasantly surprised. It was better than I thought it would be.
0: Well, I went on a journey with it where initially I thought it was better than I thought it would be. And I would sort of maybe specify that by saying it wasn't as incompetent as I thought it was going to be. Like there was a degree of competency to it that I was surprised by. But then as it continued to evolve and unfold, I found myself less and less Impressed.
1: I mean, don't get me wrong. It's a real piece of shit. But, like, it's not just, like, a, a horrific, awful piece of shit. It's just, like, your run-of-the-mill piece of shit movie.
0: Yes. Like, I thought, going in, I sort of thought, I had a hope, you might even say expectation, that it was going to be incomprehensible. Just, like, a total, complete mess. Kind of like, I mean, because I actually am someone who loves a good, bad movie, and, um, inter- interestingly enough, Bruce Willis, who is one of the quote unquote stars of this film, he is, uh, the star of one of my all time favorite bad movies, Color of Night, the erotic thriller from 1999. And, you know, I have not seen it. Well, <laughs> mark it you in your you little journal. You got add that
1: to my list. <laughs> you <got> it.
0: <laughs> it is, if you ever want like truly a great bad movie, Color of Night is definitely the way to go. I, I. I've seen this movie more times than I can count. I can recite every line from beginning to end. And I actually remember like showing it to people in high school and in college. Like I would gather people together and I would be like, you you have to watch this movie. And I would just sort of sit back and watch lovingly as they experienced the spectacle for the first time. But, you know, Color of Night is just it's nonsensical. It's madcap. It's, it's larger than life and it's badness. And like I said, I was hoping, expecting that that would be the case with this. But no, it actually was, yeah, it was like a a run-of-the-mill, direct-to-video-ish, mildly competent, uh, you could argue, like, reasonably sane film.
1: Yeah, it's like it ticks the boxes of, like, the bare minimum that needed to be done with then some surprising actor gets if you will, but also casting that makes absolutely no sense and immediately takes you out of the movie. Like, casting Megan Fox as that, like, harrowed, like, street-savvy, will-stop-at-nothing-to-save-the-girls FBI agent (laughs) is, like, laughable. Like, you can't cast, like, no FBI agent looks like that.
0: There's just not one in the world. Well, this is, yeah, this is where the movie starts to break down for me. Like, once I sort of acknowledge its initial competency, I I do feel like there is a kind of moral bankruptcy to this movie. I almost experienced it as cynicism. That, to me, I would say almost warrants the 9% tomato rating. I guess just to kind of frame this for people, because like I said, I don't think most people have seen this film. I feel like we should at least Mm -hmm. sort of outline the premise. Um, It's kind of a convoluted premise given how little actually happens. But basically, spoiler alert, uh, Lucas Haas plays a serial killer who basically targets... Like wayward young prostitutes, most of whom I guess are being sex trafficked. There was sort of like a sex trafficking angle that was sort of half developed. Um, But he basically targets these wayward women who are sort of lost souls. He kills them. He's a serial killer. And then on one side of the movie is this FBI team, played by Megan Fox and Bruce Willis, um, (laughs) running some sort of undercover sting operation where I believe they're trying to... I wasn't clear if they were specifically on the hunt for the specific serial killer or if they were just trying to protect... Young women who tend to be killed in the motels on the highway just by random vagrants.
1: Yeah, or or just trying to bust people running sex trafficking rings. Yeah, it's very unclear what their motivations are. And it seems that they're constantly stepping out of line and risking a lot to do their jobs and having a lot of arguments about what's appropriate and what's inappropriate, while being, I guess, totally inappropriate, like overstepping the boundaries.
0: (laughs) But what I loved about it was the arguments were totally amongst themselves. It's just Bruce Wilson, Megan Fox kind of debating the issue. We never really see them at headquarters. They have no official superior. They're never never actually arguing with the hierarchy or the administration for the sake of these girls. It's sort of just them sort of ruminating amongst themselves, I guess, the ethics of their own lawlessness and going above and beyond to rescue these women. Mm -hmm. who, like I said, it may or may not be about them being targeted by a serial killer. It may or may not be about them being sex trafficked, or it may or may not just be about them in general being in danger by virtue of of what they're doing. But they're in one camp over here sort of tirelessly working to save these women. And then you also have uh, this sort of small town Bible thumping earnest cop played by Emile Hirsch. Who also is aware, so he's aware that a lot of these girls are dying. Again, unclear to me, I guess it's his rogue theory that there is one serial killer out there who has kind of killed like six or seven of them. Again, there's Mm -hmm. kind of a lot of noise that the higher ups Don't believe him or they're not working with him or they're not willing to sort of take it seriously. So he, much like Megan Fox and Bruce Willis, apparently is sort of often going out of his jurisdiction and doing what he needs to do ostensibly to undertake this investigation. I mean, the movie doesn't really give us much of an investigation on his part. He's not really doing a lot aside from saying that he feels compelled to go above and beyond to try to stop this killer who no one else seems interested in stopping.
1: Yeah, he's really sick and tired of having to repeatedly go to the mother's houses and tell them that their daughters have been murdered. So he's hell bent on finding out who's murdering these girls girls and we'll do whatever it takes to take that guy down
0: and according to the movie no one else really seems to care that these girls are yeah
1: because they're just prostitutes at the end of the day (laughs) exactly i have a perfect the perfect victim for
0: said serial killer i have a lot to say about that but so okay so those are the sort of the two camps uh sort of fighting for the sake of these girls and then yeah lucas haas is the serial killer who's been killing these women and then, I guess, laying their corpses out suggestively by the highway. Now, for some reason, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think there was an explanation as to this, but his most recent victim, he has decided not to just strangle and kill and leave by the highway. For some reason, he has abducted her and he's taken her into like this dungeon that he's outfitted, I guess, in the the barn-like structure where he usually cuts wood um Mm -hmm. and he's held her hostage there again we don't really know to what end because the thing is i mean not to get dark but there's kind of a sexual suggestiveness but it never really commits to it and we don't really know if he's actually sexually assaulting this woman as far as we know she's just kind of kept in this room that has blankets over the wall and her wrists are tied and she's scantily dressed and he kind of comes in and makes her bathe herself. But beyond that, we don't really get much of a sense of what, like with, you know, Silence of the Lamps, for example. We kind of end up understanding Buffalo Bill's M.O. and what he's doing and why he's doing it and the pathology behind it. Lucas Haas just kind of presents as your garden variety Serial killer, who I guess is just abducting this woman to abduct her,
1: yeah, we have like a sense that he like he's a he's a man living a double life because he has a wife and a child, and he's like a devoted husband and father. But then at the same time, he's this like merciless serial killer of sex workers. <laughs> and it, the only time we kind of get a glimpse into the why of everything is when he mentions to the girl that he's abducted. That his daughter is here to save his soul or something. So then we were like, oh, maybe there's some like religious element to this or like. I don't know what the belief is, but that was the only glimpse into any
0: sort of like inner workings on his part. Well, we got one other glimpse into his inner workings, and I thought it was a very sophisticated, subtle Mm -hmm. and elegantly um, executed glimpse into his inner workings, which is in in, I think it was one of the only murder scenes that they actually show on screen. He has a prostitute in the motel room and he's dancing with her. And as he's holding her close, first he says to her, oh, you're a good girl. You're a good girl. And he he pets her lovingly. And then all of a sudden something in him switches and he says, you're a dirty girl. You're a dirty prostitute. And that's when he strangles her. So I felt like that was Randall's subtle, sophisticated way of letting us know that there was some sort of inner conflict in him around women and I guess being attracted to women and perhaps what it means for a woman to be sexual
1: purity versus impurity
0: exactly the
1: character study in (laughs) darkness and light and how one can hold both of those things in themselves at the same time
0: exactly and I did I did do some research after I watched it and I did I I was like reading interviews of Randall and he was talking about how important it was for him to capture the complexity of humanity. In that there could be a character who both does depraved things like killing women, but then we also see him at home as a husband and a father. And, you know, God bless his soul. Randall seemed... the first person to explore (laughs) these huge themes. Hats off to
1: one Randall Emmett.
0: I mean, I felt sort of bad because he was so earnest in talking about it. Where I mean, he was talking about being on set watching Lucas Haas. You know have dinner with his with his with his wife and his daughter, and feeling literal nausea watching it because we knew just days before we had filmed the scene where he 'd watched him do you know atrocious acts as this character, and how can someone have both of these sides in them and i just i did i had a little bit i had a moment of just feeling bad for him because it was just like. Your view of humanity is clearly so oversimplified that this really is striking you as some sort of profound contrast when, you know, to your point, (laughs) this is not Mm -hmm. exactly like breaking news. Yes, people have many sides to them. Yes, like serial killers and other people who do bad things throughout time also have like other lives where they're upstanding citizens. And yet he really was holding this as like a complicated, complex Character study.
1: Yeah, it definitely felt like I felt that it was like an authentic exploration on behalf of one Randall Emmett into what this like world looks like, the duality of this like serial killer, the responsibilities of men to their family, what like an exploration of femininity. I mean, it's like a sad and like bad exploration. But it was an exploration nonetheless. Like well, I got a very good sense of like his view of the world and of all
0: these all the different kinds of people in it. Well in like ex- humanity. Exactly. And that's why I said like by the end of the movie, I was just like, this almost just feels cynical to me. Because I feel like what's crazy about the movie, I mean, there's so much, right? But what's crazy about the movie, so basically Megan Fox as the FBI agent runs another one of her undercover stings to try to catch Lucas Haas. It goes bad. He ends up abducting her. So Megan Fox, the FBI agent, is abducted at the same time as, like, the primary victim that they're all trying to rescue in the movie. And then sort of towards the climax, Megan Fox, you know, who's chained up, she... Basically gives the other victim who I mean, this is how by the way, this is how little of a character this woman is. I don't even remember the the char- I watched this movie today. I cannot tell you that character's name. The I can't
1: w- tell you a single character's name in the whole movie.
0: You're actually right. I don't know a single character's name either.
1: I don't know anyone's name. Yeah. That's
0: it. Uh, So victim number one, the woman, you know, the woman who's been abducted the whole movie, Megan Fox kind of gives her this pep talk and basically says, like, you gotta get out of here. You gotta survive. And it's through Megan Fox's, you know, rallying. That the first primary victim manages to find a way to escape and, you know, kind of finds help and whatnot. And it's just what's what's crazy to me is that apparently like in reading interviews with Randall and also the, the actress who played the primary victim. And then also what Randall was saying about why Megan agreed to do the movie is that in Randall's mind, this movie was actually in many ways about female empowerment and female unity and it's like i mean first of all actually before i even get into that i just want to talk about the fact that this movie is positioning itself as being a voice for the voiceless as being a (laughs) voice for in randall has talked about this like you know there are these these girls who are getting killed and society's left them behind And this movie is giving them a voice and this is why i call it cynical because it's like these women are still voiceless in this movie I mean, there is no representation of these women aside from the woman who gets abducted and is, like, bound and gagged the whole movie. Like, we never once—this movie is told primarily through the point of view of the FBI agents— it's told through the point of view of you know the, the Bible, the God-fearing law enforcement, Emile Hirsch. It's told through the point of view of the serial killer. It is not once told through the point of view of the voiceless woman that it is purporting to give a voice to, which I just kind of want to start right there. The fact that you are announcing yourself a champion for these lost souls, and yet you are still relegating them to the role Of the exploited victim who runs around basically being used and abused by men scantily clad the whole time, the camera lingering on like their half exposed butt cheeks as they're like trying to escape, you know, the imprisonment. It's just and for Randall to your point to actually view this as a as a voice for the voiceless, it's kind of insane.
1: It's insane. And also to think of the roles and like the archetypes of women that are represented. It's either you're like a drug addled prostitute, like side of the road hooker. You are a mother. You are just a elder, single, living alone, like <laughs> grandmother or, or just like an elderly loner or you you are in control but you also are like stunningly gorgeous like the per I, like truly i can't express like megan fox has eyelash extensions she has a full face of makeup the entire time her contour is happening like all the injections are working together the symmetry of the face is like perfect like there's never been an fbi agent that looks like this like it, and if there is you wouldn't trust them because an FBI agent should not have the time to like get eyelash (laughs) extensions and contour and lip injections.
0: Well, that's the thing. This felt like Megan Fox's character felt like Randall's version of an empowered female character, you know? And of course that version of an empowered female character. Yeah. First of all, she looks like Megan Fox, you know, Mm -hmm. second of all, let's not forget like what this character's role in the movie is. Yeah. I'm an FBI agent and what I do is I use my sexy appearance and my feminine wiles to go undercover as a wayward prostitute. And then basically from there, like I beat up men. And then, of course, even that, it's just such a caricature. It's like there's no sense of actual ownership of like feminine, female, womanly energy. It's just basically like I'm a hot babe who can shoot a gun. And kick the shit out of guys, which is basically like in Hollywood terms, it's sort of male. It's like the power. It's like equivalency of male power, basically. So basically, I'm just hot and I can beat guys up. That's sort of Randall's version of an empowered female character.
1: And the way I empower myself is to disempower myself and use myself as bait. I like bait people because she even says like, I'm like the hot bait or something like that. When she talks to Bruce Willis, who also seems to have no idea why she keeps doing this and they they're pretty bad at their job. So it seems
0: and and let's also point out the fact that she I mean, a lot of the characters have backstories in this movie and they're not afraid Mm -hmm. to wield them. And she has a backstory. And of course, her backstory is that she was a victim of sexual assault. You know, so she is actually a literal victim. And of course, that's what's motivating her to go out there and be sexy bait for, you know, for, for the dangerous men out there. And let's also not point out the fact, let's point out the fact that her role in the movie as the empowered kickass female is to ultimately be bound and gagged and abducted. And, you know, yet another kind of victim of the serial killer's game that he's running.
1: Yeah, so... There's no real great representation of women in this entire movie.
0: And I also want to say even like the wives and the mothers, like um, Lucas Haas's wife. First of all, the women all look the same in the movie. They all look like kind of a version of Megan Fox.
1: Even the grandmother who like lives in the countryside of Pensacola, Florida, where the movie takes place, had a full face of injections going on.
0: Oh, yeah. And a full face of makeup when her whole scene takes place at kind of the the, the titular midnight. Uh, yeah. This is like the neighbor who the first abduction victim who escapes, like she flees to the neighbor's house. And yeah, she had like a full face of makeup, like lip gloss on. This was a woman who like was put together.
1: I guess the only unsexy female character was the mother who had lost a child to the serial killer who Emil hirsch had like driven down to personally tell her that her daughter was dead
0: mm-hmm. and she like, all- she
1: was harrowed and had experienced such a profound loss like there then your female identity and like looks are just like they are tossed by the wayside <laughs> just to live the rest of your life as like a grieving like unsexy non-asexual woman
0: And I felt like she was sort of in there as the placeholder of, like, oh, this is the real person. You Mm -hmm. know, like, the one real person in the movie. Okay, we need, like, we need a character who's just, like, the real person. And, like, so that was her. So she could kind of be frumpy. She didn't need to have a full face of makeup. Because, yeah. Yeah. Um, Lucas Haas's wife, who's supposed to be the kind of, like, down-home country wife and mother in the middle of Pensacola, Florida, like, in the middle of nowhere, I mean, she totally looked like—I mean, to your point, I mean, she had all the injections, she had, like, the thin body, she had, like, the full lips, I mean, she was—she— could have been Megan Fox's partner in the like undercover sting operations. Yeah, it got me thinking a lot about Lala during the movie.
1: Me too, and I I was hoping that Lala would have a cameo at some point in the movie, and then was disappointed when she didn't. And then this is always interesting. Like I had a friend who is married to a director, and he made like a real he made a horror movie. And then after I watched that horror movie, I was like, damn, like he was like thinking because it was like a creepy landlord who's like spying on all the tenants and a lot of them are female and he's just like such a creep and it's like kind of horrific. And you're like, whoa, this like came out of this person like yikes. And I wonder if Lala, if the same thoughts have crossed Lala's mind, like I would just be like, whoa, this is like, this is what you felt you had to say, this is your art. This is, like, kind of a cipher for your own feelings and, like, perspective on women in a lot of ways.
0: But see, what I was thinking during the movie was, like, I feel like this is also Lala's version of empowered femininity. You know, yeah. I mean, I mean, I feel like mm-hmm. Megan Fox, like, Megan Fox somehow felt like the movie equivalent of Lala. It's kind of like, I'm empowered, but really my form of empowerment is to just kind of, like... Yeah, certainly wield my looks and my sexuality in a way that is, you know, ultimately pleasing to men and is sort of like in a way kind of defined by men. You know what I mean? It's, I mean, it's mm-hmm. interesting because I remember when Lala first came on the scene, I did really like her, you know, in part, I think, because she was such an underdog in that world. And also, At the time, there was a way in which it seemed like she sort of really owned who she was and was unapologetic about it. And I remember actually saying, like, she's like a feminist icon. I don't really feel that way about her anymore. And I feel like, yeah, Megan Fox's character just made me really aware of Lala as like, I feel like you have this notion and this idea of what female empowerment means and looks like, but it's not actually Empowering.
1: Yeah, that's a good point and very true.
0: Lala's version of female empowerment,
1: I think, is image based in its entirety.
0: It's image based and it's also yeah, it's like working within. I mean, and I'm not even someone to usually toss around these words, but it is. It's like working within the construct of the patriarchy. It's not like let me blast something open and be authentic to the truth of who i am it's like let me wield what i got to succeed within a governing system but like it doesn't Mm -hmm. really address the fact that like the system is still defining how she wields and uses her power and gets to where she is
1: well that's like basically what she did on vanderpump rules which is she just ended up conforming to kind of the boundaries of the group. Mm -hmm. She began as like trying to break through those or define her own. But in at the end of the day, the hive mind wins.
0: Right. Because it's like if she wants to succeed within that matrix, she's got to play by the rules.
1: Yeah. And even it's like her relationship with Randall, at first made her an outlier, but then I think it became her ultimate like pawn and playing card.
0: Her currency. Yeah. But what's crazy about it is like following that thread. It's like Randall honestly thinks he's making a movie about an empowered female character and female unification and remains totally blind to the fact that he is the agent of the oppressive system, that he's still just sort of creating something, yeah, that exists from his work. I mean, he's essentially the serial killer, right? The serial killer, Lucas Haas, is sitting there saying, oh, you're a good girl. No, you're a bad girl. And there's this sort of Mm -hmm. blunt, crude, crass division in his mind, in his psyche about women. And I feel like in some ways that's what's being revealed in Randall, where it's like, I'm ostensibly saying that I want to empower women And also, first of all, there's a few different splits here, right? Because on the one hand, there's just the split of like the kick-ass empowered female and then just the totally disempowered victim, right? Those two uh, characters exist very much in this movie. But then even within that, it's like within those divisions, there are more divisions because the empowered kick-ass female really is still disempowered because it's this sort of like juvenile boys version Of empowerment and also as we said like the voiceless disempowered female still is just relegated to being a victim and is still just a voiceless sort of in the world created by this immature man.
1: Yeah and we actually never see true resolution for the victim number one who escapes like we know that she does eventually get to a safe she gets to like the neighbor's house. But there's no like, there's never a follow up where we see that she's like come home or like not where she's like looking healthy and safe, etc.
0: I think there was one fleeting shot of her being reunited with her sister on like a dark porch. I think they're like holding each oh, other. Oh, really? I think it was a it was a quick. Oh, I didn't. It was quick. But I think it's interesting because then it immediately shifts to the last shot of the movie. Of course, is Emil Hirsch, and I think is he like crying mm-hmm. as he hugs the. Uh, The mother of one of the victims.
1: Yeah, I think so. It's like he's finally gotten to come back to her and say, "I did it." And it's It's like self-congratulatory.
0: Well, exactly. That was my point. Final scene. Yeah, it's like this is this movie is like the fact that it's really begins and ends with Emil Hirsch's character. It's like so again, Mm -hmm. you're you're giving a voice to the voiceless, and yet this whole journey is really being told through Emil Hirsch's eyes and how it impacts him. And how it fuels him. And this is something, by the way, I mean, I see this in Hollywood all the time. Did you see um, Wind River? Is that what it was called? Wind River? I didn't. The Jeremy Renner movie directed by, is his name Taylor Sheridan?
1: I didn't see it, but I just, was that the one where Elizabeth Olsen is an FBI agent?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh Uh-huh.
1: I can't with like a sexy, beautiful (sighs) FBI agent. Like, after you've seen Silence of the Lambs and that really shows you kind of what an FBI agent in training would be, like anything else that doesn't meet that aesthetically is like, I'm taken out of this. Also, this girl is like, what, 22? Like, I just am not buying it. <laughs> well, in Silence of the Lambs, at least they had Jodie Foster. Like, yeah, she was very pretty and plucky, but they also... That she was age appropriate for where she was in her training and like her career and everything. And they did a good job of like fleshing that out and like catering to it.
0: But what was crazy about Wind River, Wind River, first of all, was critically acclaimed. I just want to say that it was like critically acclaimed, people, you know, still championing it. People liked it yeah and i want to say it was another one of these movies i mean literally because it was about the victim (laughs) you know of course another female murder victim is a native american woman and at the end of the movie there's literally a title card that comes up that says like you know statistics about how many native american women go missing and there's never resolution on their cases and i'm just sitting there like you are actually pretending like this movie was about the native american woman because let me tell you the movie was about jeremy renner It was a story about like the struggles and plight and the crimes perpetrated against Native American women told through the eyes of the white man trying to solve the case. And of course, Jeremy Renner has a backstory where he was married to a Native American woman and then something bad happened to her. And that's what's motivating him. And of course, you know, once again, like with Randall Emmett. Taylor Sheridan is a white man. And it just, to me, I just found that movie so offensive because it was just sort of the, the ultimate example of, of, like, we are completely appropriating this experience. We're pretending that we're giving it representation, but then we're not actually willing to give the story to the actual characters to whom this movie belongs. We're pretending that we are. Mm-hmm. But we're still giving it to a white man. And I just felt like that's exactly what uh, Midnight in the Switchgrass was doing, where it's like we're pretending we're giving a voice to these voiceless women. This movie had no exploration of sex trafficking, no, 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 no examination of the ins, the outs of it, the kinds of, you know, women who fall prey to it, how they're set up for it. I mean, there's no actual driving thrust exploring that. We are entirely with the people on the outside of it and primarily with the Christian God fearing local cop who yeah, closes the movie with a close up of his like emotionally broken down face because he's finally getting the catharsis (laughs) that apparently he needs in this Mm -hmm. crusade to give a voice to the voiceless.
1: And also interesting, like his relationship with his family and how, cause like a lot of that character's conflict is how much time he has to take and spend away from his family in order to do his job and fight for these victims. And so he's like, sacri- you just realize how much he's sacrificing <laughs> the whole time to save these women, which is interesting because I wonder if Randall has like a similar daddy's got to work now, girls, conflict. Well, you're reminding me. his own uh, life.
0: Yeah, one of the things that kept bothering me, at one point Emil Hirsch says, oh my God, it actually makes me angry just talking about it because I, I found this part <laughs> so patronizing. He literally says at one point to someone... 'Cause he's talking about why he feels so, you know, passionate about, you know, fighting for these girls. And he literally says something like, you know, just because someone's an addict or they've lost their way, doesn't mean they're that their life has any less value than the rest of us, or that they're not like worthwhile human beings. And I remember just kinda like hearing that, and it just it really made me pause because I just thought, wait a second. First of all, I felt like the movie I could feel this is Randall Emmett thinking that he's conveying an important point of view. And by the way, I did do research after this and I read interviews with him and he did like Randall literally said those words in his his interviews. Like I was drawn to this movie because, you know, look, just because someone's an addict or has become a prostitute doesn't mean like their life doesn't have value. And to me, I was just like, why would you even think to say that? Like the fact that you even, because for me, it would never even occur to me to clarify or to specify that someone's life still has value, even if like they're a bit of a wayward soul, because to me, that's implicit. Of course, someone's life still has value. And I just feel like if you're saying those words, that's because on if you feel the need to clarify that, that's because on some level you actually do believe there's some sort of hierarchy of worth in terms of like human life and human value. And on some level you're kind of patting yourself on the back for being quote unquote aware enough to like put that point of view forward.
1: Yeah. I mean this whole movie is an illustration of exactly what that hierarchy is in his mind Mm -hmm. by just making this movie and putting it out in the world He's kind of telling on himself in a lot of ways because you're like, oh, this is how you see these women and like who you deem worth like paying attention to. Like we can't let them tell the story, but like I will let you have like this empowered woman played by Megan Fox, (laughs) but her power only stretches to like X amount of like she's only so empowered or whatever. And then these poor women, like, we must save them. They're just so sad, wretched creatures, like, that have fallen by the wayside. Like, it's like, it masquerades, it doesn't even do a good job masquerading. It just is, like, it is, like, very revealing about his own relationship and thoughts on women.
0: Yeah, and then the fact that they're used as a prop for his sort of self-congratulatory, oh, see, I'm giving a voice to the voiceless. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, that's kind of all that's
1: Hollywood. I mean, he's not doing anything that hasn't been done on like much more like much grander and more refined scales.
0: Well, I guess that's why I said to me it kind of felt cynical because as I was watching it, I was just like, this feels this didn't feel like a movie that should be made in 2021. Like, I felt like this feels like 2005 to me. I just felt Mm -hmm. I I know. Look, it's not that I'm naive. that. That, you know, Hollywood can be so outdated and there's still a ton of work for us to all do. It kind of reminds me of the conversation we were having about, you know, when I was just on SUP and we were talking about kind of expecting more from Kathy Hilton and Dorit. It's just far as having general awareness of, like, what's appropriate and what's not appropriate in the race conversation. Like, I just kind of felt by this point with the Me Too movement. You know, with everything that's just kind of in the collective conversation, that there just be some semblance of an awareness of optics and kind of even what looks good and what doesn't look good. And the fact that this movie just felt like such a throwback to such a transparently kind of archaic and patronizing style of filmmaking. That's why I say it just feels a little cynical to me. Like, I'm like, surely you can't be this out of touch that you don't even realize what you're creating and what it says about you.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think it definitely, absolutely, like it can and it will. He can be that out of touch and he is that out of touch. And it's not that surprising because I feel like, especially in that, Vanderpump universe, so many people, like it's just totally in line with like the brand of Vanderpump rules, where it's like they're the kinds of people that don't understand like drug addiction or like how it works or alcoholism really, and like are so slow to kind of like pick up on what that means. And but at the same time, they're like discovering everything for the first time. And once they do, then they become like, hardcore about it and it has so much meaning and they feel like awakened but they're discovering all these things like five or six years if not like 10 years after the fact
0: well and I think what's so what feels so insidious about like the Randall Emmett part of it is the fact that when I did do research and I read these interviews with him he really does believe that he's giving a voice to the voiceless. He really does believe that he's like telling a tale of female empowerment. He truly thinks that he's doing something good with this picture. And it's just that to me is what makes it so insidious that not just the lack of awareness, but the actual conviction that this is anything other than just a complete byproduct of everything that's wrong with the entertainment industry and perhaps like, you know, things that are wrong, which is the system at large. Mm-hmm. Like he's convinced. But I also
1: con- kind of love that as being another facet of the art that is midnight in this witchcraft. Cause like the kind of the intention behind the art becomes part of the art itself. So in that sense, I'm like, yes, that's actually perfect.
0: Yeah. I kind of felt that too. And, and that's kind of also how the movie itself just felt kind of like this empty vessel of serial killer cop investigation cliches. Kind of like even your point about like the through line about his wife, uh, Emil Hirsch's wife, wanting him mm-hmm. to like spend more time at home. Which, again, it was just another one of these conflicts that really had no legs. I mean... It didn't go anywhere. It didn't really force dramatic decision. It had no impact on the plot. We just got a series of scenes where she was sort of teary eyed and complaining that their baby had a fever, and Emil Hurst promised he would be home more. It, it was like a placeholder of a dramatic conflict. But it, it's like I call it a placeholder of a dramatic conflict because we've seen this thing in these types of movies. So many times it's like such a stock character, right? The harried cop who's overly dedicated to the case and pays a price for his personal life. It's like this writer and Randall, it's like they knew kind of the boxes they needed to tick. And so they just threw in a bunch of crap to tick the boxes, but it was done in the most sort of rote perfunctory way. And so the movie just sort of feels like a, a shell of a caricature of a serial killer movie and in that way yeah it has a kind of artifice that somehow almost feels profound because it's such a Mm -hmm. reflection of its own emptiness
1: no it is in that way it's almost like you could have let like an ai machine write a script like if you gave them a bunch of hashtags or buzzwords or other films to reference and said like write this script like that it's something like
0: this could be written that's yeah, that's exactly that's exactly it. That's exactly it. What did you make of there's there's a scene where Emil Hirsch goes and uh, he visits the the mother of one of the victims as we discussed, and she's the one who has the monologue that mm-hmm. gives us our title, uh, "Midnight in the Switchgrass," where she basically talks about how in her youth her mother, I believe, committed suicide, and then her father, who I guess was a traumatized war veteran. Became even more traumatized, and he became abusive towards the daughters. And so, then um, this character, this woman who really has like basically one scene in the movie, she's describing how she and her sister would flee into the switchgrass outside of their home at night to try to kind of flee their father's explosive outbursts and then the father would sort of go looking for them in the switchgrass and sometimes they'd avoid him and sometimes they wouldn't. And that was sort of her tale that she shares with Emil Hirsch. And obviously ostensibly there's some sort of thematic weight there since this is the where the movie derives its title. I mm. personally really couldn't make heads or tails of where we were supposed to go with that or sort of how this even connected to... The dramatic thrust of the movie in terms of like sex workers and giving a voice to the voiceless. But I was just curious if you had any kind of thoughts about this.
1: I actually liked that part. That was one of my favorite parts because I was like, oh, that's like why the title and then it reminded me of like Silence of the Lamb. It's very much like his carbon copy Or his attempt to copy a Silence of the Lambs type of movie, but doing a piss poor job of it. (laughs) So it was like, this is like when Clarice talks about the lambs like screaming and like trying to save the lamb from getting slaughtered. And then you finally, you see like, oh, the Silence of the Lambs, like that's the, like this was that moment to like tie it together. But it actually really it had...
0: Yeah. yeah. Well no, I was gonna say it makes sense in Silence of the Lambs because with Silence of the Lambs it's sort of like okay, this is an explore- it's 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 an exploration of what drives her as an FBI mm-hmm. agent. Where and, and by the way, she's the main character of the film. Whereas this is like a secondary character who shows up for one scene and her backstory regarding her suicidal mom and her war veteran father, who's abusive, really has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. It sheds no insight on any of the major players and it has nothing to do with the central drama at hand. So is this just another example of the AI kind of like like information was just put through and it's like Silence of the Lambs backstory and this is sort of what came out in the printout?
1: yeah. It's just story time. Like, I literally see a screenwriter, Randall, like, on a very coked-out phone call, (laughs) and then he's like, we need something, like, signs of the lambs, like, some sort of back thing, and, like, maybe she... Like, I can... They just, like, spitball and then come up with this thing that they think is, like, incredibly (laughs) profound. And even, like, is profound enough that it hits someone like me who's joke-watching the movie being like, oh, okay. And, like, that's his earnest attempt at... Trying to like tie together the title.
0: Well, I also want to say that actress I thought was a good actress. I thought she sold. Yeah, it.
1: she was good. She felt like realistic, like a realistic person in that world. Yeah. No one else really did. Maybe, like, the girl, like, the victim number one of the serial killer that we see, like, kind of stumbling out of a hotel room and whatever. Like, maybe she felt, like, kind (sighs) of grounded. But Machine Gun Kelly, I guess he was kind of seemed grounded in the world to some extent.
0: Yeah, actually, I thought he was pretty good. Um, Neil
1: Hirsch wasn't bad.
0: I mean, he just had so little to work with. I mean, literally, yeah. you know, part of the way they establish his, his Bible-fearing fear, ways is he comes home, kisses his wife, kisses his baby, and literally says out loud, Lord, I am blessed. And I was just like, yeah. oh, God, really? Like... Really? And his
1: wife, like, I just don't understand what the casting process was like. Like, it's like they never had people screen test with each other <laughs> and then just offered random people roles and we're like this will work and you're like Emile Hirsch doesn't mesh with this woman like you can tell that they just wouldn't be together IRL like Megan Fox and Bruce Willis like that <laughs> totally takes you out like anytime like you're watching a different movie and truly that's where the dialogue is some of the worst dialogue are is the dialogue in the scenes with the two of them together
0: I mean Bruce Re- Bruce Willis's presence in this was just mystifying I I I actually assumed this was a payday for I thought this was like kind of like Emmett doing his usual thing where you know the it way It was. He, but he, I actually
1: he shot in one day and got a big payout I think for it.
0: Well, this is what's crazy. In one of the interviews with Randall, he actually said he asked Bruce Willis for a favor and was basically like I need you to do this for like no money basically cuz I've got no budget. So basically Unless maybe Randall's lying to make it seem like he's closer to Bruce than he is. But Randall did say, like, Bruce did this as a favor. He was like, I have no budget, which means that, like, Bruce Willis willingly showed up to this role as a favor to Randall. And I guess just, you know, for the people at home who are listening to this who haven't seen the movie, I mean, to say that this is a thankless role is like an understatement I mean he has nothing to do in this film I mean he basically kind of sits in cars sits in diners like every once in a while Megan Fox kind of checks back in with him he kind of just sort of like grumbles out a line here and there I mean it is if 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 you needed a textbook definition of what it means to phone a performance in, I feel like this is the performance that would kind of come up on the screen to like give you that information.
1: I mean Bruce must have he's probably made so much money off of Randall movie roles that he felt like doing him a solid wouldn't
0: was owed. It's very unclear. Well, that's what Randall said. Randall said he's, you know, I paid him so much over the years, which again, I was like, okay, is this Randall, you know, inflating stuff? But maybe it's true. I guess I also just sort of question. I mean, of course, I understand the financial value of having a star in the marketing material no matter what. But from a filmmaking perspective, there is something just sort of strange and distracting about having this megastar, not in like a one scene cameo role. You know, it makes me think of like Christopher Walken in like True Romance. You know what I mean? He comes in for the one scene. But to be in this like supporting role that really Mm -hmm. has nothing to do, it's just, to me, it was, it was, it it made the movie feel even more like an incoherent mishmash because all I'm doing is sitting there thinking like, Bruce Bruce Willis is just hanging out in this film with nothing to do, playing the most ridiculous character. He could not seem more passionless about this undercover sting operation.
1: Yeah. And he, we don't even get, like, I feel like when you are a diehard, no pun intended, Bruce Willis fan, you're tuning in for just like that Bruce Willis feel and like the vibe and you don't even get that from this movie. Like you don't even get the satisfaction of him getting like a good one line off or having like a small action sequence or something or even being like iconically Bruce Willis in any way. It truly is like you could have taken flipped him out with any older gentleman and it would have been it would have not have made a difference
0: the vibe was a vibe of defeat Mm -hmm. it just he felt defeated to me he felt he
1: felt yeah like an actor that had to do a day of unpaid work and felt angry about it
0: it felt to me kind of like I've had this whole career and this is what it's led up to what's happened to my life Mm -hmm.
1: and Megan Fox like is not a good actress either and i feel like this really showcased that
0: well what was shocking to me so i was reading some of the reviews and a lot of people were saying the only redeeming part of this movie was megan fox
1: oh see i didn't i think that she's really bad I think that she doesn't, it's like she doesn't know how to react to people. I don't think this is the role for her. And so (laughs) I guess me as a viewer being taken out of it, just from like that perspective, I'm not going to see her as being a good actor. I thought Lucas Haas was really good in it.
0: I did like Lucas. Lucas Haas, when it focused on him and his character, that was the one part. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it was good per se, but it was the one part of the movie where I started to feel engaged in a different type of way um just like the little stuff you know him he has like a secret compartment hidden behind a bookshelf where he stores his victims clothes and there's one scene where they you know you watch him take the clothes out and he sniffs them and he kind of starts to masturbate but not like totally things like that like getting into the details of him as a killer that to me is where the movie started to come alive a little bit and maybe that just says something about you know maybe that's the truest part of randall coming through in the film i don't know uh but i did think i thought he was good i thought he did the most that he could with the material yeah and i was i was enga- i was engaged by him i was engaged by the the woman who had the one scene role role where she gave the monologue about getting lost in the switchgrass and i think that was it
1: i like the title midnight in the switchgrass is like an evocative it's an evocative title but everything about this movie did really fall flat.
0: Well, and also Switchgrass did make an appearance at the climax because when Mm -hmm. the first abduction victim makes her escape, she is crawling around in the Switchgrass.
1: Yeah, trying to escape the killer who's like chasing after her. So that was kind of like a full
0: circle moment. One interviewer did ask Randall about the symbolic significance of the switchgrass. And what did he say? I mean, it, you were kind of, you kind of hit the nail on the head. He didn't really have much of an answer except to say, that's where the bad stuff happens. <laughs> um, and he was, and then he said, it's just this theme of darkness, which, you know, I want to say, I actually like back in the day when I worked with writers and, you know, was, was teaching, Um, Screenwriting. I actually wrote a whole article about that very thing where like when a writer says something like the theme, it's about the theme of loneliness or it's about the theme of darkness. And it's like, no, no, that's that does not qualify as a theme. You can't just like Mm -hmm. throw shit at the wall. And say it's a theme like a theme has to actually be a an executed idea that's like spoken in a full sentence that has like a subject and a verb and a whatever is on the other side of a verb like it has to Mm -hmm. be a point that is made through dramatic action and I feel like randall is coming from that kind of school of storytelling of like if i just have this cool idea and throw it against the wall it's a theme of darkness and that's where the dark stuff happens and yeah to me it was just kind of further proof that i don't think there is any kind of real deliberate thought behind the switchgrass i think he thought it sounded like a cool title and to your point i think he felt like there needed to be some sort of like yeah cool backstory throwback And that's sort of as much thought as he's given it.
1: That makes sense. It feels right.
0: The other thing that I thought was really interesting in the interviews with Randall, I felt so bad for this. I mean, I don't feel bad for the screenwriter because look, he got his movie made and (laughs) you could argue that, you know, he he is reaping more benefits than he deserves. But um, Randall talked about like, oh, working with that writer was a dream. He he made himself so available. I mean, at two o'clock in the morning, I just get these ideas of what we had to do and I'd call him and he'd always pick up my call. And I was just like, can you imagine like, trying to just get a good night's sleep and at 2 or 3 a.m. like your phone's ringing and it's randall with one of his like crazy ideas for like what we have to do with midnight in the switchgrass
1: No, I would kill myself. That would be the worst possible kind of collaboration that I can imagine. But everything you're saying, again, it feels like that is exactly what was happening. (laughs) Like I can picture that happening multiple times. And then this is the product that you get. I'm interested to see if Randall gets to direct another movie because this one, or I think he is. But I, I mean, this one performed... I mean to say it tanked is like that's even a compliment because I looked it up and it was a budget of fifteen million and it made sixty nine thousand dollars. <gasps> no. Yeah. So I think that I mean he has a real flop on his hands if those numbers are true. I mean that's just what you can find online. So Wow.
0: Well, I mean, not that I think this movie would have been a hit anyway. He could always kind of deflect to COVID.
1: Yeah. But I mean, and this movie, it's like, there are not a lot of reasons if you can just get the bare minimum execution done. There's not a reason, a lot of reasons why this movie would have to be as bad as it is. Like, if you can, there's such an appetite for true crime stories right now. In the right hands with the right writer and director, this could have been, like, an HBO Max show or, like, some sort of miniseries or, like, whatever. And then you just put it in this person's hands and this is what you get. Like, you bungle it so badly. And you also have access to, like, high-level talent and you can't even use them appropriately.
0: Well, and also this movie just didn't know what it was because the truth is, it's like, yeah, is this like a serial killer movie or is this a movie about sex trafficking? I just I just feel like if you're making a movie about giving a voice to the voiceless, then just make the movie about that. I felt like they were trying to fuse two different films together. And you kind of just even saw that in the fact that, like, there was this whole, like, band of heroes. You know what I mean? Like we had. The FBI team, then we had the local cop. And what's so strange is, you know, Bruce Willis's half of the FBI team pretty much just sort of gets left behind at a certain point. Mm -hmm. He sort of drifts away from the movie. It becomes about Megan Fox sort of teaming up with the local cop. But the whole movie just kind of felt splintered to me to where I was like, what am I even watching? And could you just pick one? Because with the... um, The sex trafficking through line, in the way that I was saying we don't really ever get into the world of sex trafficking, I also felt like we didn't really get into the world of the serial killer. And like I was saying before, I really didn't understand why his MO suddenly changed. Why was he suddenly abducting girls when before he was sort of leaving them on the side of the road? What was his intention like in abducting her? Because right before she escapes, Megan Fox basically says to the first victim, she's like, he's going to kill you tonight. Which I didn't really understand Mm -hmm. how she knew that, but she was like "He's, he's gonna kill you tonight, and then I'm going into your room, and I guess then she's gonna be kept in the room until he kills her. There was like I said before, there was just no real understanding of what his his MO was or what was driving him. So I just felt like it was neither a serial killer movie nor was it a movie about sex trafficking. And the two things just kind of canceled each other out.
1: Yeah. Even my like trauma from watching it is gone now. Like it makes so little of an impression that it's like, I just don't, I guess I don't like violence for the sake of violence. And that a lot of this movie felt like that. But then once it's over, it's over.
0: Yeah. I mean, it was interesting because I, I, I did find myself a bit disturbed by the movie and I, I don't. I'm not I'm pretty you know I, I I'm okay with movie violence you know I mean again I love bad movies and I watch all sorts of movies but again I think because there was something that struck me as so cynical about this film and really just how sort of blunt and crass its double standards were again it being 2021 at this point and just sort of watching the way for example when Lucas Haas does kill the one girl that we see him kill like real-time in the movie, the way the camera makes sure to linger over her body and her mini skirt before he kills her in the way that it very much kind of engages in this push pull between like on some level you're clearly supposed to be titillated before she's dispensed with in this gruesome way and I think because it just was so shallow and so superficial you'd almost think that would make it more tolerable but I think for me especially with sort of where we are as a collective the shallowness of it the roteness of it the work workman like kind of perfunctory nature of it to me it almost made it more disturbing because I was just like don't we know better at this point like it it disturbed me it really did disturb me it just it it stuck out in such contrast to like just the complexity and the nuance that can be out there at this point Mm -hmm. yeah totally i mean part of me just wants to say we don't i mean i know this isn't totally obviously this isn't true or else this movie wouldn't have been made but part of me wants to say we don't live in this world anymore like this isn't these aren't the types of stories we watch anymore
1: no or if we do they're like far more refined than and nuanced than this but this is like randall emmett making like in his mind a refined and nuanced feature film
0: I mean, he had literal nausea when he realized, you know, he was exploring a man who could both be a husband and a father and a serial killer. Yeah. So
1: (laughs) I don't know what the darker thing is. Is that like a film like this was made a present day or that Randall Emmett had this experience while making it?
0: I mean, it's just you have to like, you have to wonder about the way in which he's perceiving the world. Mm -hmm. If that notion that to my mind, overly simplistic notion <laughs> that there can be a man who's an upstanding husband and father who also has a secret mm-hmm. life. If that makes Randall Emmett if that's a nauseous experience for Randall Emmett, you really have to wonder about how he's experiencing the world. True. He did make a comment in one of his interviews where he did refer oh he was talking about he was talking about the the referring back to the backstory that explains our title with the switchgrass he was talking about the abusive father who was like the war veteran in this in this in this tall tale and he referred to the guy he was like yeah I mean he was this horrible person and even that just struck out that sort of stuck out to me I was like oh it's just so interesting that you're like first of all in the movie she explains he was like a traumatized war veteran uh, you know, his wife committed suicide. I'm not, like, justifying his apparent abuse to his daughters, but obviously this is a man who was, like, sort of tormented by inner demons. And I just thought it was so interesting that, like, as the director of this film, especially someone who was apparently giving voice to the voiceless, to refer to a character as, like, a horrible person, it just was another indication of, like... Randall, you see the world in a very binary, sort of childlike heroes, villains, good, bad sort of way. And that, that to me is more disturbing than the notion of a Lucas Haas character who can have a double life. Your lack mm-hmm. <laughs> of an awareness of duplicity and nuance in that possibility is more disturbing to me than the serial killer who is also a husband and a father.
1: Yeah. I didn't think I could come away from watching this being more disturbed about Randall. But now <laughs> he's he's really proved that wrong. That perception wrong on my part.
0: And now he's raising little ocean.
1: I know. Three daughters. Also, yeah, just like three daughters oh, at right. home. I forgot about yeah. that. Yeah. So just interesting, like Randall's relationship with women.
0: God, someone's got to get an interview with his ex-wife.
1: I'm sure it's coming.
0: I want to know. Same. Because she was with him in the first place. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I want to think of her as like, because, you know, in a way she's like, She got away. Oh, wait. He didn't. He met Lala when he was already kind of separating from her, right? He didn't leave her for Lala, right? So, like, there's a way in which she's got away. So, you kind of think of her as like having some grounding or being more with it than Randall. But then you remember, like, in the words of Judge Judy, she picked him.
1: Yeah. And she has two children with him. So, I don't think you ever get away when that happens. And it's like, he, Lala, the look of those two women is so similar it's like oh randall definitely has like a type of woman that he goes for which is just another interesting facet
0: well i think the last interesting facet about him is just the fact that in his own sleazy way he 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 does have this streak of industry you know and that he really Mm -hmm. did sort of pioneer this business model for these schlock movies um you know that apparently has been quite profitable and that you know I, I mean i i knew that he produced the irishman i didn't realize he produced silence you know it's like you know somehow he, like then shimmied his way into you know some of these really interesting movies and He's he's an interesting guy because it just makes you wonder if he weren't so emotionally immature and kind of overly invested in what just feels like kind of the most shallow sort of superficial aspects of the industry. What would he be creating or what could he do? Because he clearly, I mean, look, he's not, he's got, he's industrious, you know? I mean, he is mm-hmm. a man of, he creates things.
1: Yeah, and he's found a niche and has made it work.
0: I guess the last thing I'll say is I I couldn't help but I just kept the whole time imagining sort of Brittany and Jax's enthusiastic response to the movie because, you know, they loved it and, you know,
1: oh loved it. Yeah, I'm sure Jax thinks it's like, (laughs) uh, like an incredible film, like everyone should see it, had him on the edge of his seat. (laughs) I'm sure he mirrors Randall's emotions, like watching like this complicated serial killer guy, like. Because I think they share like a very similar worldview, which is why they're such close friends.
0: I, I really wish I could be a fly on the wall when Jackson Brick kind of like had that conversation with Randall, like just telling him how great it was and how much they loved it. And... Oh, that would be great. Anything else we need to like touch on or cover to feel complete? Any takeaways?
1: My takeaway is like keep your expectations as low as possible and you'll always be pleasantly surprised. <laughs>
0: You mean in general or just with this movie?
1: I think just with anything in the Vanderpump universe specifically.
0: All right, Laura. Well, thank you for stopping by and for weighing in on this. Yeah, thank you for having me. Where should people find I don't know you?
1: if I would have ended up watching this were it not for you, so.
0: <laughs> I don't know if I should feel, like, bad about that or I should be apologizing.
1: No, it's just it is, it like it opened up an opportunity for me to watch a movie and go into territory that I otherwise would not have ventured into. And the am so truth... always appreciative of that.
0: Yeah. And truthfully, I don't know if I, if I would have sought it out, had I not like committed to doing a podcast episode about it. So here mm-hmm. we are. And we have a little, I think we have a little bit more of a glimpse into Randall Emmett's Psyche, yeah, definitely. Where should people find you?
1: You can find me. Um, you can look up Sex Unique Podcast on all podcast players Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, etc. If you want to follow me on social media, you can find me at Lars Marie across all platforms, and I also have a podcast called Saving Sex in the City 3 that's on every Streaming podcast
0: platform as well. All right. Well, and as always, you can find me on Instagram, Jamie Stein. You can check out my website, HollywoodReadings.com. And I will see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.